Good afternoon. Welcome. I'm so glad to see you today, Ian. Um, this is my guest, Ian Case, and uh, this recording uh, that we're making today is especially for the Death, Dying, and Bereavement course that I'm teaching, and um, Ian is also a student in that class um, this spring at uh, Union Theological Seminary. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, Ian works with Brooklyn Zen Center, and I'm going to begin, Ian, by asking you to tell me about how you got involved with the Brooklyn Zen Center and what it is you do there now. Um, so I've been with the center since its inception, 15 years ago. Uh, we started as a small sitting group. Uh, there were three of us in the beginning, and it, uh, it grew. And after about three years, we moved into a one-bedroom apartment. And about two years after that, we moved into um, a larger kind of loft space that we rent now. Um, so it grew from just a small group of uh, lay practitioners. Nobody was ordained at that time. Um, there was a teacher from the San Francisco Zen Center who was, who began to visit us and she began to divide her time between San Francisco and Brooklyn. And students started having a, a, a relationship with her and over time a community grew up and uh, to the point where we were able to have classes. Um, there were some ordinations. Uh, Greg Snyder, who was one of the founders, was ordained in 2009. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there was just the kind of an exponential growth. In the, well, maybe not exponential, but a, a steady but gradual growth of the community. Um, to the point that we became Brooklyn Zen Center. Um, my role, okay. I'm sorry, were you also ordained uh, somewhat recently? I was ordained in 2016. Okay. So in, in Zen, ordination means you're, it's, you're not really a, a teacher. So there's another process called Dharma transmission, which uh, empowers you to teach okay. and to ordain others. Uh, but I'm really very much uh, more of a, you know, I'm still starting out. I'm still training as a priest okay so it's, it's a different kind of formation yep. um, so yeah that was in two, 2016 um and i started a union in uh, 2017 okay which i envisioned as a kind of part of my training really yeah um and for the past year i've been the interim director of the brooklyn zen center so Okay. Um, my interim keeps getting longer and longer, <laughs> but I, I still have, I still retain that word interim before that to, uh, with the hope that someday somebody else will fill these shoes. Okay. So my, my role right now is I have kind of a dual role, role, which is the director position is very much administrative and, you know, concerned with the temporalities and and budgets and things like that. And then as a, as a priest, um, I have more of a practice and a pastoral role. So I'm, I kind of wear two hats and sometimes those hats get uh, combined or yeah. 
there are two aspects of, of my role there. Okay. And tell me uh, roughly about uh, how many people are part of your community now. We have about 110. So we have members. We have people who um, pay monthly dues. We have about 110 okay. members. And um, in terms of you know, regulars, maybe it might be a little less than that, so. And you have a new aspect of the program where you were just telling me a bit ago. Tell us about the, uh, the new monastery. Yeah, so it's been uh, a dream for a while to, to have a, uh, a residential um, practice center in the country somewhere. And uh, so we came very close a few years ago to getting another property, which fell through. And then this new property, which is in Millerton, New York, which is about two hours north of the city. Um, we uh, kind of stumbled upon it uh, about two years ago. We did a, we rented a place um, called Watershed, which is a retreat center in upstate New York. And we learned of this property that was right next door that was for sale and we looked at it and we had some uh, donor that we got a grant to, to buy this property. Wow. Um, so there are seven monks living up there now uh, since, since last August. Um, so there is, that's, you know, it's a small scale, but it's operational and they're following a monastic schedule yeah. You know, so they get up at 4.50 in the morning and they do meditation and they have you know, work periods and things like that. So that's... And, that's and a, trying to live under the new rules of the uh, coronavirus, yeah, month, I guess. Yeah, in a way that, I mean, they've been relatively um, spared in a sense because they've al they were already cloistered. Yeah. Um, you know, they do have to, um, you know, every couple of weeks they have to go shopping for food and, you know, they take precautions. But once we, uh, once we kind of closed down, they stopped allowing visitors at the monastery. So they kind of closed the gate, as it would say. Yeah. Um, but in terms of their day-to-day -day schedule, they really haven't been, uh, uh, too affected. Okay. Which has been a kind of a nice anchor for the community in the city to have that yeah. going on. How has the, um, how have the regulations to uh, shelter at home and not gather in meetings uh, impacted the community that meets in Brooklyn though? Yeah. So I guess we, today is like the month anniversary of when we officially um, closed the Brooklyn Zen Center. And you know, it's weird. So much of our, so much of Zen practice is uh, you know, we talk about warm hand to warm hand transmission. It's a very um, so much of the practice is involves doing it with other bodies in the same space. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was, that was kind of immediately felt. It's like, okay, now we're going to have to retreat to our apartments. 
And over the kind of the first 10 days or so, we, uh, we kind of started, you know, trying to move the offerings that we could into some kind of online format. So we, now we have, uh, you know, meditation periods in the morning and evening, which are done over Zoom. And then at the monastery, they're live streaming their, their noon service and their evening service. Okay. And then we have a Dharma talk every Saturday. Um, so that has been a way for us to, you know, maintain connection. I think, uh, I think the hardest part for a lot of people in the community and myself included has been just the kind of, uh, the stripping away of routine and, you know, form and ritual and form. Yeah. And we're kind of uh, left alone to our own devices in our apartments. So I think the community is really working on ways to ritualize our lives at home. Yeah. Um, people are making home altars or really trying to bring the temple into their own home yeah. as, as a support. Um, And, you know, we have all these other groups. There's like an undoing whiteness group that meets. There's a peel of color sangha that meets, a B12, a 12 step, Buddhist 12 step program that meets. Um, so all those um, practice groups are also meeting on Zoom. Okay. So yeah, we've uh, kind of stitched away to bring all this stuff online and it's, um, of course, it's not the same, um, and but it has it has been supportive, and there's also been an interesting phenomena of people who you know who moved away from Brooklyn a couple of years ago are now back in the fold. Yeah, um, which yeah. has been a lovely kind of side effect of this mm -hmm. is people who had been kind of further flung are coming back because now they can join us by Zoom. Right. Um, and we also, uh, there was a committee that formed to, uh, that started to form uh, smaller, uh, like peer support groups that people could volunteer to be part of. Um, and we also sent out a, a you know, there was a questionnaire that we sent out to the community at the very beginning. And um, we're also, uh, we, had, we now have a way of uh, being in touch with people who identify as high risk. Um, older people in our song are people who have respiratory conditions. So we have people that are checking in regularly. Um, so yeah, in, no. a way, in a way, there's been a kind of a, a greater intimacy that's been called forth, I think, out of this, which has yeah. been uh, lovely and unexpected. Yeah. When I hear you talking about the, what was your phrase, learning through the passing of the warm hand? I, 
Uh, yeah, warm, warm hand to warm hand. Warm hand to warm hand. So it reminds me of in, in my work in studying Christian ministry, we talk about that people learn the practice of ministry to be leaders in the church in a, an embodied and relational way. Yeah. Not just by receiving teachings or knowledge or even understanding, but through embodied practice. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying. And I'm really curious about the impact on that learning, um, that spiritual formation for people in your community. Um, you're telling me different ways that you all are compensating for the lack of proximity to each other. Um, but I'm wondering also about how you feel like it's impacting that pastoral side of your role. How are you caring for people in your work uh, when you don't have that immediate access to them? Um, yeah, it's hard. Uh, one thing I've noticed, and I think other people have remarked on this, is uh, instead of Zoom, just a phone call. So I think there's something very, um, you know, we talk about active listening all the time. Yeah. Uh, for me, there's, there, there's become something actually more immediate and more intimate uh, about just hearing somebody's voice and actually not necessarily seeing them on a screen. Yeah. That has um, brought me closer to, to them. Um, But apart from that, we, we can't, you know, that's how we have to meet in a certain way. Um, we still also have uh, what in Zen is called dokusan. So there are one-to-one -one meetings with a teacher. Mm, okay. So again, these are all happening over phone or by Zoom. Yeah. Um, And, you know, another thing during the whiteness group, I know we did, we did this exercise where we, uh, you know, somebody led us through some, some movements and, you know, I remember we did one exercise where you just put your hands over your eyes like this and it felt just not to look at a screen yeah. and something very um, nourishing about, you know, touching your face, you know with your clean hands, of course. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, and I have noticed this a few times in some of the Zoom meetings that there, once the relational field is kind of established, even on Zoom, mm -hmm. it can take on, you can forget the medium almost. Yeah. Um, and I've, experienced that a few times. So I think that kind of intimacy isn't impossible. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be really, I think, mindfully cultivated because um, because I think it's there. It just needs to be mediated by by words and by Know, visual form but I think there there is a 
like a there's a, a small like a low door in the gate <laughs> that you can get into that kind of enchanted garden through, oh. through something like zoom um that's a lovely image so um i think if everybody you know you know in our class we came up with community agreements you know and we have in our zen center we have a set of community agreements that we um usually read aloud at the beginning of a group oh, yes. create the container for uh for safe and brave expression yeah. and i think that helps actually create that low door in the wall mm-hmm. um if people are able to express themselves and then you can let that expression sit in the air for a moment without without getting responded to um you can actually manufacture an intimacy out of that so i think it's yeah all intimacy is part imagination yeah so cultivating that as a part of the ground rules for i mean making space with the ground rules to allow the imagination to come forward seems um, important. I like the ways you're talking about, I find them helpful, the way you're talking about the structure and the possibility that suddenly you can kind of forget what's mediating Mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we switch gears for a minute? Let's talk uh, uh, just a slight turn in the road here and talk a little about what it is in your Zen community to um, accompany someone who is dying or just to confront the finitude of life uh, as a person who practices Zen. Um, what is that? Uh, help us understand that from your perspective. And, um, and then we'll talk about the impact maybe of um, what the present pandemic moment is having on, on that. Um. Well, impermanence in in Buddhism is is the central thing. It's one of what are called the three marks of existence, which are impermanence and no self and 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 suffering, suffering being resisting impermanence, basically. Um, so, in a way, I think you know. Zen and, and Buddhism are, is a training uh, to take seriously our, our impermanence mm-hmm. and uh, of ourselves and our bodies. Um, so I think that's always there. You know, in, in meditation, we practice noticing a thought come up and letting it go and seeing how that thought or that emotion has no essential core to it. I think in the past month, what's, what's happened, um, certainly in my own experience, and I think others in the community is that impermanence is not so hypothetical anymore it really is i think as we've you know retreated physically um the the reality of our impermanence has just gotten that much closer and um 
the fragility and the preciousness of life just has been amplified. Um, and like for the exercise, the obituary writing exercise that we did for your class, when I wrote my own obituary, I, I had myself die in 2051. So I imagined a life between now and then and imagined a death. And I've noticed that when I try to do that right now, it's actually, it's really, really difficult. Like the idea of indulging in that kind of future projection, yeah. even just lightly as an imaginative exercise, it seems it's almost painful to do. Mm. Like I can't walk that path anymore. Um, because it seems like I'm, uh, that there's a matter close at hand that I'm avoiding if I even go there. So there's, I think just the, the walls have closed in on my appreciation of impermanence. Um, and I think that's been felt throughout the community. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's amplified our care for each other mm, mm. because is, you know, there is this sense of urgency and a sense of preciousness mm -hmm. that, that was there before, but it, it, it was a, we were able to kind of put it on the shelf before, um, you know, there's a, at the Zen center, there's a block of wood that you, that we strike to call people to meditation. Yes. On it, it says something like, uh, great is the matter of birth and death, awake, awake, you know, don't waste this life or something. Um, and those, um, those words have just a much more deep, more, much more deep resonance now than they did before. Yeah. Um, you know, there are um, one uh, man in our sangha is a chaplain, um, okay. but he's now um, his chaplaincy is now virtual. You know, he talks with okay. health workers on the phone now, so he's not there in the hospital anymore. Um, so I think the request of that care has been elevated and we're finding new ways of letting that care move through our community and the world now. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it demands a, yeah, an, an imagination that I think we're still living into. Right. Assuming in the last decade plus that your community's been in existence, um, you've had the death of some members. I assume that's true. Maybe it's not. Um, what's the uh, typical way that you care for a person at the point of death and care for the body after death and memorialize or um, funeralize the person, eulogize the person who dies? Tell us, walk us through what that's normally like. And if, uh, if there are changes 
uh, anticipating that if there were a death now, how would that, how would those uh, things change for your community in particular? Um, you know, both my, both my parents died when I was, you know, when I was practicing. Um, my father actually died in the middle of a retreat. Mm. So the, when I heard, you know, that the community kind of, I immediately felt this sense of being held by the community. Mm. Um, you know, I was given the option to not attend the retreat and like take care of myself at home. But I decided, no, I actually wanted to be with the community. My father was in California, so I, I wasn't going to travel that day. Um, I think it's, it's hard to speak in general about how our community would deal with it because we're in a, you know, although we're a Buddhist temple, most of our members are, uh, you know, we're all converts. Right. Very few of our families are Buddhists. Yeah. So I, mother and father didn't have any kind of, uh, there were no Buddhist trappings around their death. Okay. Um, you know, I was, uh, I think very much, uh, there's a request of what, what does the person who's, grieving need what's what what can the community do to mm -hmm. support this person at this moment i think that's the first question yeah. that's that's asked um i know we've had uh you know uh parents of sangha members die um and sometimes one of the teachers will go with that person and visit uh, you know, if they want, sometimes when, when my mother died, I actually didn't want my teacher to come. I wanted to be alone, mm -hmm. um, but sometimes somebody will go accompany them yeah. to the hospital. Um, I've never actually been a part of any kind of Buddhist funeral. Okay. Actually, I don't think I've ever... I've been to one funeral in my life. My, my parents really didn't have funerals. Okay. Um, uh, but we've, we have done memorial services at our temple. Mm -hmm. And usually, um, you know, if it's somebody that the whole community uh, knew, then we'll usually have a joint uh, memorial service. Mm -hmm. uh, most recently, there was somebody's mother who died, and he requested that it be a, a private memorial service. So there were only about ten people there. Um, so I think the the scale of the of the ceremony might might differ according to yeah what that person wants. Well, it sounds very much like your community is attuned to trying to 
meet the person where they are in their own grief. Yeah. Uh, if they're a member of the community and, and uh, address the needs of that person as they understand them. That's certainly what I'm hearing in your story. Yeah, we don't really have um, yet. We don't really have a, any kind of um, preformed like checklist that we would go through. Like, yeah. Who's died? Or we have to. This is um, because I think so. Ma so many of the deaths that have happened so far have happened within families. Right. And it would be actually an awkward overstepping of bounds for somebody from the Zen Center to come in and. Okay and run the show i think so at this point you're still a new enough community that you're still learning what your what your response will be to to the time when a member uh dies i think that's true and i think now that the monastery you know in my obituary i fantasized myself being like having a green burial near the monastery oh lovely yeah right and I imagine as, as the practice in the monastery develops um, and as, as more of our members die, um, that there will be uh, more forms set up around that. Right. Besides, I mean, we have a memorial service that we do. Um, and yeah, I've, I've never been part of a, of a Buddhist funeral. So let's talk about that's what the community does. Tell me for if you're willing, if you're able to talk about it. Um, how does your your meditation practice? Um, how was it a support to you as you grieved the death of your mother and your father and maybe others in your life that you've lost? Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, I think meditation is, you uh, know, in, in the style of meditation that we do in our in our school is um, the request is is being present with whatever comes up. So we use the breath kind of as an anchor to get that to kind of gather the mind so mm -hmm. that it can do that, and then we just sit with, you know. Anger comes up, grief comes up. Um, again, it's very much, as you said, an embodied practice. So it's not, um, it's very much, I think meditation is asking us to feel grief as it ripples through the body, mm. or any emotion as it ripples through the body. Mm. Um, I think that's, um, an important aspect of it. Yeah. That we're not, um, you know, we're looking at our grief and also the stories that we might have around any kind of story that we might have around this event that emerges in the, in the heart mind. Um, so I think, uh, when my mother died, I had just started practicing. I was, uh, yeah. one of my regrets is that <laughs> I had, I had, if I had known now what I had known then, right? Um, 
but yeah, I think what meditation is just encouraging us to be to be present with our own uh, reactive minds, with our own narratives, um, and encouraging us to the extent that we can to hold those loosely. And so along with that comes the capacity to be with my own grief and hopefully with the grief of others. Yeah. At the same time. Well, those skills sound very important for also navigating just the time we're in the moment culturally that we're in where everywhere we look, everywhere we turn our attention is another crisis. <laughs> um, so to be able to sit with that, allowing it to simply be without becoming reactive to it um, internally seems like also uh, a gift uh, for getting through a very stressful season. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think definitely, and I think my own, um, this has kind of turned the fire up on my own meditation practice because it's now it's it's not like oh if I don't meditate maybe my day won't be so good it's like I need to do this now every morning for me to have some um, just some measure of presence for what's going on um, because it's so the um, the violence of it and the awesomeness of what's happening is, uh, is can be overwhelming. Yeah. And, uh, and if you start following the news or anything, then it's so easy just to go down that rabbit hole. Right. And so I really need these practices to, to anchor me back um, to a place where at some point I can say, okay, I'm not going to stop watching the news now. Yeah. Um, just prepare myself. Uh, let's, I would like to end with one, one final question for you today. Um, what in this month of, I uh, like you, I'm at the just past the month mark of being inside my own house. Um, what in this time uh, has brought you some moment of joy or comfort or compassion? Um, I think just witnessing the resilience of the community. Um, you know, we're kind of all, it seems like we're all kind of figuring this out for the first time in a way. Um, and I think we are figuring it out. So it really feels like we are discovering ways of checking in on each other, maintaining contact, um, bringing groceries to each other if we need to. Um, so there is, I'm heartened by the, this kind of resilience and flexibility. Because um, I think I imagine, I imagine forward to a day when these restrictions are down, we can come back together. And we're not gonna be this, we're not gonna be the same community that we were before this. Um, this is really stretching our capacity. It's requiring 
uh, flights of imagination and uh, appropriate response that, um, that I think we'd be hard pressed to come by if we weren't met with this situation. So I think there is something that's getting elicited from the community um, that uh, gives me a lot of hope and joy. Well, thank you so much for sharing these stories and your experience with us today, Ian. And um, I'll see you soon in class. And uh, I'm grateful to hear about how the the community, the Zen Center in Brooklyn is um, sustained in this time. That in itself is encouraging and brings me some hope. So thank you. Thank you for having me.